Father, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. What a great opportunity you give us to study the word of the Lord. And our prayer, Father, is that you would move us in the direction of heaven. Lord, we so easily get caught up in the things of the world. And Lord, we don't want to do that. We truly want to be caught up in the things of glory. And tonight, Lord, as we look once again at this great book of Job, we pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to see the beauty of what it is you have for us. Truly, Lord, you are great, and all that you do is great. So tonight, help us to see how to respond when disaster strikes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Job chapter 1, Job chapter 1, how to respond to disaster. Yep, it was a great disaster in Job's life. If you were with us last week, we told you that when disaster strikes, it comes uncontrollably, it comes unexpectedly, it comes incessantly, it comes incomprehensibly, and it comes always divinely and always purposefully. In other words, God is always in charge. God is never not in charge. In fact, Romans eleven thirty six tells us that everything in the world comes from him, it goes through him, and then back to him again. To him be the glory forever and ever. It's all about the glory of the Lord, right? And so God makes sure that everything is focused on him. And yet, he would challenge Satan with his servant Job to consider him, to go after him and to test him. And yet God gave him parameters, right? You can do anything you want, but you can't touch the man's life. Can't touch him. And so although Satan probably wanted to do that, he could not because he wasn't given permission to do so. And yet he caused two nations, the Sabaeans and Chaldeans, to come against Job's livestock, Job's servants. He caused fire to come down from heaven. He caused there to be a wind that would destroy his, the home of his oldest son, and all ten children would die. And so that trial was incessant. It didn't let up. And it came one after another, after another, after another. And now Job, Job is responding to this. And all the holy angels... And all the unholy angels are watching to see Job's response. Satan is watching to see Job's response because Satan has no idea how Job's going to respond. He thinks that Job will curse God. He thinks that Job will turn his back on God because he's not omniscient, right? He doesn't know. So he's waiting to see what's going to happen. All heaven is. But the Lord, he knows exactly what's going to happen. That's why he offered up Job. And so in three short verses, this is his response. And his response sets the tone for us on how we should respond when disaster strikes. Now the good thing, here's the good news. Whatever comes your way is probably not going to be nearly as intense as it was for Job. That's the good news, right? So if Job can respond in this way with all that took place in his life in a brief moment on this day, how much easier should it be for you and me to be able to deal with the trials and hardships and difficulties and adversities that come our way that we might give glory and honor to the Lord? Here are the verses, Job 1, verses 20 to 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Those three verses reveal to us the character of Job. We've told you before that when you read verse number one of Job 1 and you understand who Job is, the character of the man 
is what allows them to respond this way. And so because he was blameless, because he was a God-fearing man, because he was an upright man, because he was turning away from evil, that was his life, okay? When disaster comes, this is now how he responds. And so it's important to understand that character is everything. Because character, right, does not, is not developed in disaster, but it's revealed when disaster strikes. And this is the character of the man, Job. So let me give you five words, five words that deal with the response of Job and this disaster, five words that will set the tone for you and me when it comes to responding to disaster when it comes our way, okay? First word, sorrow. Second word, submission. Third word, surrender. Fourth word, sanctity. Fifth word, silence. Five words. Once you understand them and how Job exemplified them will help you understand how to respond when disaster strikes your life. First of all, sorrow. And we would expect that. We would expect there to be extreme sorrow. I mean, after all, he lost all of his children. He lost everything that he had. He had nothing left. If he sat back and said, well, you know, we had 10 kids. We'll just make 10 more. No big deal. He could have said that, but he didn't. Because all 10 of them were very special to him. Or he could have said, you know what? 3,000 camels, that's not a big deal. We'll just go and buy more camels. But no. If 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 he'd responded that way, we'd think, you know what? Maybe he's a little insensitive to how things, when things happen. Or maybe he's really not in touch with reality. But there was sorrow because he tore his robes and he shaved his head. Symbols for, they're external symbols for what's happening on the inside of an individual, the pain that he is experiencing. And you have to understand that when disaster happens, sorrow is a very real emotion. Think about it. When Sarah died, Abraham wept profusely, and rightly so. And when, when Lazarus died, Jesus at his tomb would, would weep. And so weeping and sorrow is, is, is the normal thing that happens when disaster strikes, when tragedy comes, when hardship arises. What do you do? How do you respond? And there is sorrow in Job's life simply because of all that he lost, and that would be expected. If he didn't sorrow, if he didn't tear his robes, if he didn't shave his head, then we would begin to wonder why. Note, our faith does not make us insensitive to tragedy. In fact, it makes us very sensitive to tragedy. And yet, While faith allows for the expression of sorrow, our faith does not permit excessive sorrow. Remember that. While our faith allows and permits sorrow, it does not permit excessive sorrow. Why is that? Because you see, we don't weep as those who have no hope. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4? He said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning, concerning the coming of Christ and all what's going to happen surrounding the, the rapture of the church. We know that those who have died have caused you sorrow, and rightly so. They would cause you to, to sorrow. But we don't sorrow as those who have no hope because we have hope. And guess what? Job had hope. When we get to Job 19, we know that he has hope in what? The resurrection. He knows that his Redeemer will live. He knows that once he dies, he too will live. So he has hope in the resurrection. How does he know that? How does Job have hope in a resurrection? How did Job know about the resurrection? That's a great question. Well, if he is a contemporary of Abraham, I do believe he is, 
And Abraham would take his son Isaac up on top of Mount Moriah to sacrifice him, believing that that's what God had called them to do, and the angel of the Lord stopped him. Our study of Hebrews tells us what? That Abraham believed that his son would rise from the dead. He believed in a resurrection. So Abraham, who believed in a resurrection, would be able to transfer that information to those around him that they would understand about the resurrection of the body. And so here was Job, who had hope in a resurrection. He would see his children again. He would live again. He didn't sorrow as those who had no hope, because he had hope in eternal life. He knew that this life wasn't the end. He knew there was life after death. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that if we hope only in this life, we are of all men most miserable. If all we have is this life, we're miserable. But Job didn't have this life. He had the next life. So he wasn't miserable. But it didn't keep him from sorrowing over all that he had lost. Notice, he tore his robes and shaved his head. That means to tell us that he had care and control over his emotions. He would not just rip his robes. He would tear them very methodically. He would shave his head very methodically to demonstrate the care and control he had over his emotions. You see, he wasn't going bonkers, having lost everything, pulling out his hair, screaming, what am I going to do now? No, because he had hope in a resurrection. He had hope in eternal life. He had faith in the true and living God, as we will see in the statements that he makes. He had a firm grasp on God's providence and a firm grasp on God's sovereignty. He was able to exemplify that. Can you imagine the pain? Could you imagine the emptiness that he felt? Well, how about this? The questions that he would have. How? Why? Who? Why me? Why now? Why all at once? What is going on? You can't imagine all the questions he would have having lost all of his possessions, having lost all of his children. And yet, he sorrowed. And rightly so. But number two, note this. Submission. The Bible says he fell to the ground and he worshiped. He fell to the ground and he worshiped. Worship was a priority for Job. He wanted to honor his God amidst his pain. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about how he could adore and affirm his God. So he bows to the ground and worships. He is ascribing worth to the creator of the universe. He is not blaming God. He's not shaking his fist at God. He's not screaming at God. No, he tears his robes, he shaves his head, and he falls to the ground. He prostrates himself, and he worships. The only one cursing God is Satan. He thought Job would curse God. Oh, was he wrong? So the only one cursing God now is Satan. He's thinking, what on earth is this guy doing? He is sorrowing, and rightly so, but now he is submitting himself to the sovereign God of the universe and worshiping his creator. He is not screaming at his creator. He doesn't speak out against the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans. He doesn't seek uh, revenge on them, does he? He doesn't figure out what he's going to do to, to get them back for what they stole from him. That's not a part of his life. He's a blameless man. He's a God-fearing man. He's an upright man who turns away 
from evil. He didn't seek revenge. He just simply wanted to worship his God. Now think about that. Think about that. There are many people who go through hardship and difficulty, not nearly what Job has gone through, and they can't even come to church for weeks. Weeks. They are so overwhelmed with their sadness, with their loss. They can't even come to church to to worship their God. They can't even come to be with the, the people of God who want to support them. They can't even be with the people of God who want to love on them and, 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 and hug them and, and, and do what they can for them. They just stay away. But Job would worship his God. He would honor his God. He would lift his God's name on high above his own name. Because you see, Job wasn't into him Job was into his God. Yes, he would sorrow, but he would submit himself to the creator of the universe, the Lord of his life. Remember in our study of Daniel, I I gave you four principles. I'm not going to ask you to give them back to me because on Sunday, most of you couldn't even give me the one verse I talked about on Sunday, right? But anyway, remember I gave you four principles. Job exemplifies all four principles just like Daniel did, right? And the four principles that govern my life, number one is this, to be is more important than to do. Remember that? Who I am is more important than what I do. That deals with the character of an individual. Job was all about character. Being faithful is more important than being successful, right? Job was a very faithful man, faithful to his wife. He was faithful to his children. He was faithful to his God. And then I said that the third principle is this. Knowing God is more important than knowing anything or anyone else. And Job set out to know his God. He wanted to know his God more than anything else. But that last principle, it applies to Job like all the other three, And that is, what happens in me is always more important than what happens to me. What happens in me is always more important than what happens to me. And that was Job. What was happening in him was important. What was going on in the inside of the man was important. It was more important than what was happening to him, coming from him from the outside. Because everything about his life was about the worship of God. That was his priority. That's why he would offer sacrifices for his children when they got together. Not knowing what kind of sin they might have committed, he was there to honor his God. He was there to bring his children before the throne of God. That's what he wanted to do. That's who he was. He was a man of supreme worship. And so, word number one is sorrow. Word number two is submission. Word number three is surrender. Surrender. The Bible says in one statement, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. What a great perspective. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 6, verse number 7, for we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of this world. (coughs) Excuse me. You know, so many times we have such a hard time with the things of the world. We love the material of the world. We love it more sometimes than the immaterial, the eternal. But Job didn't hang on to things, right? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. I came with nothing. (coughs) Excuse me. Now I'm going to leave with nothing. He knows that. What a great perspective. If you understand that, you don't hold on to things in your life too tightly. He also says these words. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He recognized that all that he had, God gave him. 
God gave him the camels and the, and the oxen and, and the donkeys and, and, and the land. And, and, God, and God gave him his children. They were gifts from the Lord, right? But he recognized that. Psalm 127 tells us that, that children are, are, are a gift from the Lord. They're like arrows in the, in the, in the quiver of a, of a warrior. In other words, we, we, we have these gifts that, that we possess briefly. But we're to prepare them biblically because we want to use them for the glory and honor of the Lord. But our children don't stay with us forever. And Job understood that. But he recognized that the children he had, they were from the Lord. All that he had was from the Lord. The Bible says, what do you have that you did not receive from the Lord? Answer, everything. What you have tonight, the Lord gave you. You can say you earned it, you worked for it, you might even worked hard for it. You've climbed the corporate ladder and you've stressed to get there and you, now you're at the top of that rung and you've done everything you possibly can, but without the Lord, you're not going anywhere. And Job understood this. I came with nothing, I'm leaving with nothing. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Because the Lord gave it, if he decides to take it, he can. It's his. Blessed be his name. He honored the name of the Lord. He has a divine perspective. He looks, he looks backward. Naked I came from my mother's womb. He looks forward by saying, naked I shall return. But in looking backward and looking forward, he always looks upward. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because he gave and he chose to take away. That's who he is. So he surrendered everything to the Lord. His whole life was a picture of surrender. So there's sorrow, there's submission, there's surrender, and then there's sanctity, holiness. In all this, and through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. He did not sin, nor did he blame God. Because you see, blamelessness and fearing God and living an upright life and turning away from evil was the character of the man. And so when tragedy strikes, that character now is revealed at the most opportune time. And that's how you're able to understand the character and nature of the man and who he is. Because it's revealed at the proper time. At the time you need it most, he reveals it. Because that's who he is. You see, he understood. Now remember, Job did not know about what was happening in the heavenlies. He did not know that he was chosen to be a battleground for Satan. He did not know that. And he never knows that. He had no idea. He could not even begin to comprehend it. He's as caught off guard as anybody ever would be caught off guard by disaster that comes upon him suddenly, quickly, unexpectedly. He had no idea. But it wasn't about questions. I'm sure he had them. But at this point, he had no questions. He just surrendered to God and submitted to God even though there was great sorrow over all that he had lost. But he did not sin. He did not blame God. He recognized that God is not unwise, God is not uncaring, and God is not unloving. You never blame God for anything. And this totally took Satan by surprise. He had no idea. But unless God had given him the opportunity to do what he did, Job could have never taken these things, or Satan could have never taken these things from Job. Remember that story in, in, uh, 
And when Christ is before Pilate, and Pilate speaks to him, and Christ doesn't answer, and Pilate says to him, you, you don't answer me? Do you not know that I have authority over you? And Jesus is responsible says, you have no authority over me unless it's been granted to you from, from above. This is a great statement. You have no authority over me. It's like when, you, when your boss says, I'm going to fire you. Say, you have no authority over me unless it's, unless it's been granted to you from above. What a great, that's how you respond when your boss says, I'm going to fire you. Okay, but I don't really know. You have no authority over me unless it's been granted to you from above. Now, he might fire you, but that's because God gave him authority from above, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that Pilate was used by God, but he could only be used in, in so many ways, right? Because God is the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority over Satan and all that he does. And Satan unleashed on Job a fury of adversity. And this is how he responds. Which leads me to this. The fifth word. This we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Silence. Silence. You hear nothing from Job. That's it. These are the only words he says. He tears his robes. He shaves his head. And he makes the statement as he worships his God, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. And Job understood that the Lord gave him everything and blessed his name. And never did he sin against his God. But the fifth word, silence, is so important. Because the silence from here on until the next episode, you see, this is just the beginning. And he doesn't even know it yet. This is just the beginning of his adversity. Wait till Satan ramps it up when he afflicts him physically. And then he has no comfort from his wife or no comfort from his friends or no church to come around him and support him and take care of him. No morphine to take when he's in pain. No Darvacet or Percocet or oxycodone or whatever it is you're going to take when you're in pain. Right? You have nothing. So Satan's going to ramp it up. But he has no idea it's coming yet. But until it comes, there's nothing but silence. The scripture records nothing. Because I think that this is what made the man the way he was. To wait, to trust, to depend upon his God to live by faith. Doesn't call anybody. Doesn't write anybody. Doesn't talk to anybody. He's silent. The Bible says these words in Psalm 27, verse number 4. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Now, when you see that in Scripture, understand, the word wait comes from a Hebrew word, which simply means to twist or to stretch. The noun form refers to a line, a cord, or a rope. And the picture is very clear, that the twisting and turning of the, of the, of the, of the twine or the, or, or, or the rope is to strengthen it. And when the person waits upon the Lord, he is twisting his life around the Lord so that the Lord's strength will infuse him. So when someone is waiting upon the Lord, they are sitting in silence, waiting upon God, twisting themselves around him, tying themselves to him so that, so that they are able to be strong enough to handle whatever comes their way. So that's why the psalmist says, wait for the Lord. Tie yourself around the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, tie yourself around the Lord. That's what you do. You've heard some, many people talk about the exchanged life, right? This is what the exchanged life is. I'm exchanging all that I have for all that God is. And I'm tying myself to him. The Bible says uh, later in <coughs> Psalm 37, I'm sorry, Psalm 37, verse 
Number 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. As you tie yourself around the Lord, stay true to him. Keep going the way he wants you to go. Psalm 40, verse number 1. I'm sorry. Psalm 62, verse number 1. My soul waits in silence for God only. Excuse me. My soul is twisting itself around God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Verse number five. My soul waits in silence for God only, for my hope is is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. So how does the psalmist have a stronghold? By wrapping himself, twisting himself, stretching himself around the Lord and all that he has to offer. That's why the Bible says in Psalm 130, verse number 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. My soul waits. My soul is engaged in tying itself around one person and one person only. The one who is my stronghold, the one who is my rock, the one who is my shield, my fortress, my rampart. Now, get real practical. How do you do that? How do you do that? Here was Job waiting in silence. And the next time we see him, there's going to be a severe affliction that comes his way. But before that happens, he is waiting in silence. He is depending upon his God. He is trusting his God. There's no conversation recorded between he and his wife. Was there? Probably so. We don't know. But there's no conversation between he and his wife. There's just silence. And I think that's a very important principle we need to understand in our own lives on how to respond when disaster strikes. That we wait upon the Lord in silence. Tie ourselves around him. Focus completely on him. No one else and nothing else. So the question comes, how is it that happens? I'm going to give you six principles, okay? I gave you five words, now I'm going to give you six principles. You knew it wasn't going to be that easy. Realize your Savior's provision. Realize your Savior's provision. Why would you tie yourself around him? Because of what he's provided. And what has he provided? He's provided not just himself, but his grace. Philippians 4, Paul says these words, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. My God shall supply all of your needs. He's a provider. Not just a protector. He is a provider. So you need to realize God's provision. And his provision, his provision is the grace. Remember over in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul had been given a messenger of Satan, right? A thorn in the flesh. It, it, It came from Satan, right? And God allowed that to come from Satan to afflict Job. And none of us knows what that affliction was. But in that affliction, it says, God answers and says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. The Lord says, Paul, my grace is sufficient. You don't have to go around trying to, trying to go after Satan or rebuke Satan or anything like that. Just listen, Paul, my grace is sufficient. He asked three times for that thorn to be removed. God said, no, it's not going to happen. 
So he had it his entire life. <coughs> Excuse me, his entire ministry. And what it was, we do not know. But we do know that God's grace was sufficient. God's grace is overwhelming. We are saved by grace. We serve by grace. We are sustained by grace. Everything that we have is because of the spirit of grace. Zechariah 12, verse number 10 speaks about the spirit of grace. Hebrews uh, chapter 10 speaks about the spirit of grace. The spirit that we have in us is the spirit of grace. It infuses us with the grace of God to get us through the time. That's God's provision. He provides us with his grace. And we sit there and say, you know, I, 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 how would I ever handle what Job handled? Well, listen. You don't need loss of 10 children grace until you lose 10 children. Right? You don't need the loss of 3,000 camels grace until you lose 3,000 camels. It's like the person who loses a child in infancy. How do they handle that? God gives them the grace to handle that. And we say, I don't know how you ever do that. Of course you don't. Because you haven't lost an infant. You don't need infant loss grace until you lose an infant. You don't need the loss of a spouse grace until you lose a spouse. You don't need the loss of job grace until you lose your job. God doesn't give you grace for that. You don't need that grace for that. Even something else. But God always provides. In fact, the Bible says over in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 10, these words. He says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The manifold grace of God. Same word used in James chapter 1 when it says, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you fall into manifold trials. Maybe your text says various trials. But it's the same word. It's, it's a word where we get our English word polka dots. You see, as there are different trials that come in different shapes and sizes, God's grace is there to sustain you for that trial and it comes in different shapes and sizes. It gives you everything that you need. So the manifold grace of God fits the manifold trials that come your way. In fact, 1 Peter 1, 6 says the exact same thing about the various trials that have come your way. The manifold trials, the, the polka dots of trials that have come your way. And Peter says, God's grace is also polka dotted. Because it deals with every situation you come in contact with. That's God's provision. We need to realize, number one, your Savior's provision. Number two, you need to recognize his sure and swift protection. You need to recognize his sure and swift protection. God's protection is sure. You can count on it. It's also swift. You say, well, wasn't too swift for Job. I mean, he was sitting in ashes. He would sit there for a week before he may said anything. Remember, God lives outside the realm of time, right? He's the eternal God of the universe. There are no clocks and calendars in heaven. He runs on his own schedule. He runs outside the realm of time. But listen to what the Bible says in the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, the 20th chapter. Jeremiah had just been beaten by Pashur, the, the priest, who threw him into stocks and beat him. And Jeremiah, all know he doesn't feel the Lord's presence. He never doubted that God was with him. There are times we don't feel that God is present among us. It doesn't mean he's not there. He's always there. He's on the present. He says this, the Lord is with me like a dread champion. The Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. The Lord is with me. He is so mighty. He is so strong. He puts fear into everyone else. Jeremiah knew that God was with him. 
He says, therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgiven. Yet, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous. He was the righteous one. The Lord of armies is the one who tests the righteous. Jeremiah knew. He knew. But yet God's protection was sure, and God's protection would be swift. And so it says, verse number 13, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, just like Job in the midst of being beaten and thrown in the stocks. He worshiped, saying praises to his God because he had a proper perspective on who God was and what God did. It's imperative that we realize our Savior's provision and recognize his sure and swift protection. Number three, we need to rest in his sovereign and specific plan. Rest in his sovereign and specific plan. Listen, Psalm 138, verse number 8. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me, the psalmist said. Job would say in Job 24, right? He performs what is appointed for me. Psalm 57, verse number 2 says, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. In other words, God has a divine plan for your life. And so everything happens on a divine timetable. So you learn to rest in the sovereign and specific plan that God has for your life. Like he did for Job, like he did for Jeremiah, like he did for the Apostle Paul, so he does for you and for me. God has a detailed, specific plan for your life. And you need to be to rest in the fact that that sovereign, specific plan runs right on course. That's why Paul would say, being confident of this very thing, that he who performed a good work in you will complete that work until the day of Jesus Christ. He who began the work is going to complete the work. Why? Because a sovereign God has a specific plan for your life. You know, to, to rest in that, knowing that God has a specific place for me to live, a specific person for me to marry, a specific home for me to buy, a specific church for me to attend and to serve in. God is sovereign over every detail of my life. And I rest in that sovereignty. That's what Job did. He would begin to rest in that sovereign, specific plan. Naked I came, naked I leave. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. That's a specific sovereign plan of God. He rested in that. That's how he could tie himself around the Lord and wait in silence upon the Lord because he could sit back and rest and say, you know what, Lord? Blessed be your name. You gave and you have taken. And in all this, Job did not sin because he realized his Savior's provision he would provide. He recognized his sure and swift protection. He would rest in his sovereign and specific plan. And number four, he would rely on the Spirit's presence and peace. How do you wrap yourself and twist yourself around the stronghold of God? You need to rely on the Spirit's presence and peace. Remember Isaiah chapter 26? In that day, what day? Well, the day of the Lord. Isaiah is talking about the coming day of the Lord. He says, open the gates, the righteous may enter, the one that remains faithful. The steadfast mind you will keep in perfect peace Because he trusts in you. The steadfast mind. Not the double-minded mind, 
but the steadfast mind. Not the mind that's a compromising mind, but the mind that's completely focused on God, that wraps itself around him. He's going to trust in him. Why? And he will keep him in perfect peace. In fact, the Hebrew says he will keep him in peace, peace. It's a, it's, it's, it's a reiteration of the word peace because he didn't know how to, how to state it in such a way that you would recognize the incomprehensible peace of God that surrounds those who have their minds focused on God alone. What a remarkable thing. The steadfast mind, he will keep in peace, peace. Perfect peace. Unhindered peace. Peace beyond all comprehension. That's why when Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but anything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let all your requests be made known unto God. Why? Because that God of peace will guard your heart and mind. It'll protect your heart and mind. No sense to worry. The Lord is at hand, Philippians 4, verse number 5. The Lord is near. Therefore, don't be anxious. Just wrap yourself around the arm, the mighty arm of the living God. Twist yourself around him. He goes on to say in Isaiah 26, verse number 4, Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. He is an eternal rock. An everlasting rock. And therefore you must trust him and remember him. He says, indeed, by following the the way of your judgments, verse 8, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. We have patiently tied ourselves around you, anticipating your coming again. And your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. Isn't that great? Is the name of God the desire of your soul? Is the memory of God the desire of your soul? Is everything about who you are the desire of your soul? For Job, he would prostrate himself and worship his God amidst all that took place. Why? God was everything to him. That was the desire of his soul. So he could worship him and praise him. So when you realize your Savior's provision, recognize his sure and swift protection, rest in his sovereign specific plan, rely on his Spirit's presence and peace, then you will remember his steadfast promises. His steadfast promises. Joshua 23, verse number 14. Joshua says, Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. What a statement. Not one of all the good words that our Lord has spoken has failed you. Not one. Why? Because he promised you this land. He promised you'd get out of bondage. You did. He promised he'd bring you through the wilderness. He did. He promised he'd bring you into the land. You are. He promised you'd conquer your enemies. You did. You see, he promised these things, and this is what's happening in your life. Not one word, not one good word of the Lord. His steadfast promises. Isaiah 40. It says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, never becomes weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. And though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who twist themselves around the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, and they will run and not get tired, and they will walk and not become weary. If you're becoming weary, if you're becoming drained, you have wrapped yourself around the wrong stronghold. You have tied yourself to the wrong anchor. 
Because those who twist themselves around the eternal Father, the creator of the ends of the earth, the Lord, the everlasting God, mm, never become weary, never tire. Youths, they grow weary. But no matter how old you are, you tie yourself and twist yourself around the everlasting God of the universe, you never lack for strength. That's a promise. And so, you remember his steadfast promises. And then number six, I know our time is gone. Rejoice in his sufficient and sensational person. Rejoice in his sufficient and sensational person. Paul says rejoice in the Lord. Always. You're rejoicing in him. You're rejoicing because of him. You're rejoicing because of who he is. So when Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord, he speaks well of God's name. He rejoices in God's name. Why? Because it was that name that gave, it was that name that took away. But it was that name that would sustain him and give him the strength to go through the losses that he had just experienced. And yet he had no idea what was going to come on the next day or the next couple of days. He had no idea. None. None. But he would be prepared. Why? Because he waited in silence and took the opportunity to tie himself around the strength of Almighty God. Why is it a man like Job who has... No theology books to read, no Bible to read, no church to attend, no Bible study to, to fellowship with other people in. How is it Job knew all this stuff? How could he sustain, be sustained in a time of great tragedy? He lived a life of surrender, submission, sanctity, and silence. And that's God's word for us tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together, the chance we have to look into the word of the Lord. Our prayer, Father, is that you'd move in and among every single one of us. Lord, you are great, and you are great to be praised. We pray for everyone, I pray for everyone in this room, no matter what they're going through, Lord, that, Lord, you would sustain them. You'd take them through it. They would see your hand, and they would twist themselves, tie themselves around you and you alone and be so wrapped up in who you are that, Lord, they never grow weary. They never become tired. They mount up with wings like eagles, and they stay steadfast, trusting in their God. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our soon-coming King. Amen.